Good morning. I hope you all are awake. I'm not sure some of you are. Um, as you walk in the foyer, there's a table, and it has some literature on it, and I'm shamelessly promoting it. Um, but there is a little card with a QR code on it. How many of you know what a QR code is? How many of you know how to use one? You know what it is, but you don't know how to use it. There is a difference. Um, but you can sign up for our monthly prayer letter, if you'd like to, by using this. It'll take you to a form that you fill out, and it'll just automatically put you on our prayer list to send our prayer letter. We send two of them out, one every other week. One's going out this morning, and another will go out next Sunday morning. Uh, one is a prayer, and the other one is a ministry update. So we keep, try to keep those that are interested in what we're doing informed. And if you don't like our prayer letter, blame Marsha, because she writes them. <laughs> but I edit them, so if there, there's flaws, it's my fault, not hers. Um, but anyway, what did you want me to say, dear? Oh, yeah, it's praise and prayer. Praise, praise one week, prayer the next. So. so we send two of them out. They're short. You don't have to spend a lot of time reading but they keep you abreast of what we're doing and where we are and, and all those things. So if you'd like to sign up for those, feel free to do that. Um, I can't believe we're already at chapter 3. Maybe you can believe it because you've been enduring me all these weeks. But uh, we have just two more weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, with you. So I'm, my goal is to finish Second Peter. I know that may seem ambitious to some of you, um, but we're going to try. Now, this morning is going to be a little different in the sense that we are going to witness two uh, of the same kind of literary device that Peter uses in this chapter. It's a Hebrew literary device, and uh, we'll get to that a little bit later, but I just warn you, uh, you're going to have a grammar lesson this morning. Um, and it won't kill you, I promise. But it's important, because if we don't understand how Peter's thinking, it's hard for us to understand what Peter was trying to communicate. So that's the reason for that. Um, in the first two chapters of Second Peter, Peter has focused his attention on three major doctrinal issues since launching into his second epistle. The first one is the origin and trustworthiness of the scriptures. That's in chapter 1. And we looked at that, especially where he emphasizes that in the last two verses of chapter 1. The second thing that he emphasizes is the danger of apostasy and error being taught in the church. And that's the focus of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we're going to look at this morning, or begin to look at that, We'll finish it next week, Lord willing. The promised return of Christ as predicted by the prophets of old. Um, this is the theological foundation for the second epistle of Peter. Peter doesn't just have a bunch of practical things he wants us to, to understand and put into practice, but he, he couches all those commands that are doing things on the basis of three theological truths, and that is the scriptures are the foundation 
Apostasy is real, and you're going to have to face it. But the third one is what gives us hope, and that is that what God has promised is going to take place. It's going to come to pass. So in chapter 1, Peter establishes the trustworthiness of the prophet's predictions by providing proof that Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, Peter goes to great lengths to warn his readers that just like in the Old Testament, there were detractors, which he calls false prophets, that in the New Testament, there would arise false teachers who would even go so far as to deny Christ, his person, and his finished atoning work on the cross. Now, in chapter 3, Peter defends the prophet's utterances concerning the future return of Christ because he then, as you'll see here in a few moments, he goes back to the Old Testament to to allude to that, to say, this is why we need to be vigilant. He quotes the prophet's broad statements to show their unbelief. Then he uses his knowledge of Old Testament history to counter their broad unbelief. Remember what we saw in Second Peter chapter 2? All these people that would come up with all these wild and wacky, crazy things, and they're bold and willful, and we saw the description, how they act, the way they talk, and the things they promote that are not helpful for us to be godly and holy. Peter's reason for upholding special revelation is to call his readers to consider the manner in which they should live in light of these future events. So these events are going to take place. How in the world, then, should we live in light of them? Verse 11 says, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter shifts his tone from railing against false teachers in chapter 2 back to his original reminder of chapter 1. Remember what he says in, in, in chapter 2 here? He says, this, now, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. Sounds a lot like chapter 1, doesn't it? And then he says that you should remember. So he uses it a second time, and he says, remember two things. Well, really, three things. Number one, the predictions of the holy prophets. Number two, the commandment of the Lord, your Savior. And number three, that was given through your apostles. So Peter is now going back to what he was originally talking about. It's almost like chapter two is this parenthesis. Oh, by the way, you need to remember that there's going to be some pretty bad people that are come, come, come along and they're going to try to destroy everything that the Bible says and what we've been teaching you as apostles. And you, you need to not forget about that. Live in light of that. And then he goes back because nowhere in chapter two do we find the tender shepherd that Peter displays in chapter one. Because he's really, he's worked up about those that are going to come and try to destroy the flock of God when he's gone. Because he makes that illusion at the end of chapter 1 that, you know, I'm not going to live here very long. I'm, I'm going to be going away soon. Peter know, knew that he was near the end of his life, and he wanted to get this in kind of as his last jab at having an opportunity to speak to the flock of God. 
Now, it fits perfectly, as a shepherd would, with what Jesus told them in John chapter 21, doesn't it? What did Jesus tell John to do in John chapter 21? He says, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He says it three times in a a little different way the first time. But the idea is, take care of the flock of God. And we find that at the end of chapter 5, or the beginning of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. What does he say? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So Peter's concern as a shepherd is that the sheep that he was responsible to care for would be safe and properly prepared for when Peter was no longer going to be in their midst physically present, able to remind them of these things. So he puts it down in black and white. He writes it down so they can remember it. And what a blessing that is to us today in the 21st century to have these words of encouragement. Life has not changed a whole lot, has it? We still have false teachers out there. But, you know, it's not anything new. It's not, it, and that's why it's written. It's so it won't be a surprise when false teachers do come along. We should expect this. It's not like, how did this happen? No, it will happen. Be ready for it. That's why Peter writes what he writes. So this is not only, it, it's in kindness and in love. As a shepherd, he warns us. This is going to happen, so be ready. I want you to be ready. I want to equip you. I want to prepare you. I want to make it so that you won't be taken by surprise when it does happen. So that's why Peter's reason for upholding special revelation is so important. Notice that he returns in this third chapter to speaking to the beloved. Listen what he says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you Beloved, and if that's not enough, he says it again later on in his uh, third chapter. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, in verse 8. So he uses the word beloved twice. He doesn't use beloved at all in chapter 2 because he's not talking to them or about them. He's talking to them about bad people that are going to do bad things, and he's warning them. Now he goes back to his tender shepherd Uh, caring for the sheep in caring for them. So how does he do this? Well, the first thing he does is he has a commendation of his readers to follow Christ. He commends them, says, you need to continue to follow. Remember what I have taught you. Remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets. Remember uh, the commandment of our Lord and Savior. Remember that he gave it also through the apostles. He gives us really his purpose in writing for why he's doing this. And he wants them to remember the prophets. Why remember the prophets? Because what did the prophets do? They predicted all sorts of things, didn't they? Now, there's an interesting thing about prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, And if you read Ephesians chapter 4, you will find that one of the gifts that God gave to the church was prophets. But the term prophets is used a little differently in the New Testament than it is in the Old. The idea of a prophet wasn't necessarily 
foretelling the future through special revelation, but rather proclaiming the truth that had been foretold by the prophets of old and proclaiming it loudly so that others would hear and be warned. That is what Peter is doing. Peter is not giving us any more new prophecies about the future in 2 Peter, but he is reminding us what the prophets already taught back in the Old Testament. So Peter is being a prophet. He is accomplishing the same office as a prophet in the Old Testament by proclaiming the truths that had already been given. And when a preacher gets up in the pulpit and proclaims what the Bible says, and he reminds us of what the scriptures have taught already, he's not giving us new revelation. He is doing what the New Testament says. He's proclaiming what's already been said. But he is fulfilling the office of a prophet. So for those of us, and I'm including in that, because I used to get confused. Oh, wait a minute. I thought it, the special, special revelation was all done when, when God get, finished the canon. What, what are we doing with special revelation, like uh, you know, being prophets and like the Old Testament sense? No, we are not. We are proclaiming the truth. Are we pro proclaiming things that are going to take place in the future? Absolutely. But I'm not coming up with the ideas. I'm just saying what the Bible says already. So that's what Peter does. And you'll notice that as we go through this passage of Scripture, he does that very thing. That's why he goes back in verse 3. And he says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I kind of chuckle at that phrase because it sounds redundant, does it not? What else would scoffers come with? Praise or thanksgiving? No, they're mockers, and they're going to scoff at the truth. That's why we have to remember the truth. That's why we have to remember what the prophets predicted, what Christ said and commanded, and what the apostles taught as a result of what the prophets had said and Christ had taught. The apostles are just reinforcers of what has already come before. And that's why scoffers come and they scoff because they're following their own sinful desires. Now, see, that, that's still a leftover from chapter 2 because what does Peter remind them of throughout chapter 2 is that they are coming, and the reason they act the way they act, the reason they talk the way they talk is because they're following their own sinful desires, which are sensual in nature. Please their senses. They either want to grab money, power, influence, you name it. But it's to satisfy their own flesh, not to glorify God. And so that is the reason why Peter is so adamant about reminding his readers. Look at what he says in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. If you could just turn back a page in your Bible. In verse 20, he says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we saw the nature of divine revelation. It comes from God 
through the human agent, but it's still the message that God wanted to, man to have. He might have used the talents, gifts, vocabulary, literary style, etc., of Apostle Paul, or of Mark, or of Matthew, or of Peter, or of John, or of any one of the Old Testament prophets you want to choose, Micah, Nahum, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, all of them, even though they're all different and their styles were different, they had different habits and vocabulary that they would use, but they still communicated the message that God wanted them to communicate. So in other words, the scriptures that we have left for us are trustworthy. Now, let's move on to Peter's concern for the scoffers of the truth in verses 4 through 9. And this is where there is a unique uh, literary device that is used. Let me quote from another commentator on this particular passage of Scripture, which is very helpful to get his perspective, if my iPad will decide to work properly. I'll quote it for you. All right, here we go. You ready? David Helm says this very helpfully in his observation on this passage of Scripture. Unlike many preachers today, Peter doesn't wield the second coming of Christ like a club in the hands of a lunatic. He is not out to get us all worked up. He's not asking us to keep looking to the sky in fright and fear. That is simply not the way he teaches on the coming end. Rather, Peter promotes a realistic view of life. He claims that God created the world, and as creator, he will pull the curtain down on this world when he has had enough of the world's rebellion. In light of this, we should give ourselves to careful, quiet preparation for that inevitable fact that is coming. Listen to the tone of Peter as we look at this. They will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter's comment and commentary on what they've said, says, for they deliberately overlook this fact. So there's an intention on the part of false teachers to overlook what God has said. Now, take note of that. That's important. Because it's a willful choice on the part of false teachers to not understand and not take the truth that God says in his word at face value. How often do we do that? Thomas Jefferson was famous for his New Testament. Where he literally cut and pasted pieces of the New Testament and the gospel record. I saw the Bible when we, Marsh and I went to Monticello this last year. And I walked in and I wanted to, I went right to their library and they had multiple facsimiles, and you pay like 30 bucks for the book. And it's basically a photocopy of, Ab of, of Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. And it shows where he actually 
cut pieces of the Bible out and took them out because they weren't convenient and didn't fit his worldview and his theological understanding of truth. That is exactly what Peter is talking about. They deliberately overlook this fact. And what is the fact that they overlook? That the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then he goes and tells the, those that he's writing to, beloved ones, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We'll stop there and we'll go back to the rest of that passage here in a moment. Here, in this passage that we just read, we get a glimpse into the worldview of the ungodly. And what is the worldview of the ungodly? Their conclusion is, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming back yet because he hasn't showed up yet. So why do we listen to what the prophets say? What's the benefit of listening to dead white guys <laughs> that wrote stuff a long time ago? Why do we pay attention to them? He hasn't come back, so what makes you think he's going to come? That's the argument. And what is that argument based on? It's based on the following. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I don't know how many of you are familiar with something that was promoted by the followers of Charles Darwin when he wrote The Origin of the Species. But uniformitarianism was something that was very popular in the 1800s. And that was the argument for not believing the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and following. Uniformitarianism, which says, you're probably like, that's a big word. I didn't invent it. But the concept of uniformitarianism is it believes that everything we see today has been deteriorating at the same rate since the beginning of time. And so that's why they can extrapolate if a particular stalagmite or stalactite they find in these ancient caves, they calculate the drip rate of the water and the deposits that cause the buildup on these stones in these caves, or those that come down from the ceiling, they get longer and longer as more drips of water and deposit calcium and iron and other minerals on them, that these things build up and they grow from the ceiling down to from the floor up, and then sometimes they meet. They calculate, well, they, the, the drip rate is such and such today. Then they extrapolate from that, well, th these caves are millions of years old. That's how they get those dates that they throw around with such freedom. The point is, they're discounting the fact that there was, number one, divine creation, and that the world was created in a certain way in a very short period of time, mainly five days, six days with rest, that guess what? 
The world we live in is not like you think it was. There's, they, they assume that there's some sort of mechanism that says it's all been going on the same, but gets the other thing they ignore. There's a second thing. That the heavens existed long ago was the first one. Secondly, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So there was divine creation. There was a miraculous act that brought the world into being. And we can go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and read about that. And then the third one, or fourth one, that they don't acknowledge and don't remember and choose to deny and deliberately overlook is that by means of these, that is water and the word of God, that the world that then existed was judged with water and it perished. They deny a catastrophic global flood. The world that we see today did not develop into what it is by some random mechanism that took millions and millions of years, but rather there was a catastrophic event that destroyed the world that was created by water and reshaped the globe to what it looks like today. They deliberately overlooked that fact. And why do they do that? It's called unbelief. They choose not to believe the revelation, special revelation that God has given. To hold to uniformitarianism, you have to do three things. You must deny divine creation. You must deny a catastrophic global flood. And you must deny the possibility of miraculous divine intervention in the geological timeline. In other words, God, you take him out of the picture and you get evolution. Because evolutionists have the same evidence to look at and consider as those who hold to creationism. They still have scientific evidence to look at. But if your mindset is to say God doesn't exist, he not, does not have any uh, intervention on, on the, the, the world we live in, and there is no miraculous intervention, there was no catastrophic global flood, then you'll come up with the system of evolution. But if you believe that God intervened, and that God worked in a miraculous way, and he created things to be a certain way, and it was destroyed by the flood, then what we get is what we see as the record that geologists look at if they have a mindset to not deliberately overlook those facts. But Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Why? Well, what? That, the, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand, as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Scoffers deliberately overlook facts. But those who are believers don't do what scoffers do, Peter says. Because scoffers overlook the truth. They overlook the facts. They deny the truth. They don't listen to what God said. Well, what are, what are believers supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to, first of all, understand that God works differently and on a different timetable than we do. 
Peter uses really an allusion to Psalm 90 and verse 4. Psalm 90 and verse 4 says the following. Listen to what Psalm 90 verse 4 says. If I'll find it here. I'm having a hard time. You get all these things set up ahead of time and then they don't work like you want them to. You ever had that problem? Here we go. Psalm 90 verse 4. Here's what the psalmist says. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, which usually lasted three or four hours. A thousand years in God's sight is like yesterday. So Peter says, he kind of makes it a little bit more modernized, I guess, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So what's Peter's conclusion? Well, it's verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't do what scoffers do, is Peter's point. Pay attention to the facts. You have them. You have the prophets, you have Christ's commands, and you have the teaching of the apostles. Don't forget those things. Let me quote again from David Helm. He has been so helpful in just thinking through this passage of Scripture in, in just a perspective and some of the things he's brought out. Here's what, what he says. A simple belief that the world will end is nothing special. In other words, the fact that the world's going to end is not a just something that Christianity promotes. There, the, the world we live in, I mean, if you've been listening to the global warming crowd, the world's going to end, right? That's what they're saying, right? Civilization is going to end. Well, that's Elon Musk's whole point in trying to explore and develop Mars with his star, uh, starship and trying to get that huge rocket into space is so that they can move millions of people to another planet. I think the guy's nuts, but anyway. A simple belief that the world will end is nothing special. It is shared by Christians and non-Christians alike. What is the, un- what is the unique... Excuse me, I can't read this morning. What is unique to the apostolic gospel is that the end will come by the intentional command... And word of God, in the very hour he so decides. In other words, yes, the world is going to be destroyed, but on God's timetable, not on yours. That's why the scoffer says, where is the promise of his coming? He hasn't come back yet. Everything seems to be going just like it's been since the beginning. Why should I believe God? Why should I believe God's word? Well, that's the heart of unbelief that talks like that. But Peter says, you, my beloved, don't ignore the fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Because the Lord is not slow. 
to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But God's slowness is patience towards you. We're going to find in the next section next week that God's patience is our salvation. God's patience is our salvation. What if God had chosen to follow the, the whims of man and realized, oh, okay, the world is coming to an end. God's going to destroy it. Then the first person, and I, I'm getting sick and tired of all the wickedness and the evil that's in the world. It's just getting worse and worse. God's time to shut everything down, close up shop, and start the final plan. Where would that leave you or me? If God chose to follow our timetable? God has a plan for the wickedness in the world to foster and create a desire for people to know the truth and to come to Christ and to be saved. That's what it produces. That's what it's intended to produce. Does that mean everybody's going to come to a knowledge of the truth? No. The scripture makes that rather clear. Universalism is not going to happen. But guess what? He is patient toward those who he still desires to come to know the truth. And Peter says this, be patient, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is Peter saying that everybody's going to be saved? No, I don't think you can say that because there are a boatload of other scriptures that make it abundantly clear that that is not the case. But Peter is making a point that God's patience or waiting to judge the earth and to end everything as he describes it in the next few verses is something that is an example, an evidence of God's grace and his patience toward a creation that has revolted itself totally against him. What does it show? Well, let me just give you a quick uh, ex explanation of this Hebrew literary device that he uses. It's been going on between verses 5 through 9. Notice what he points out at the beginning. or I'm sorry, verses 4 through 9. Look at verse 4. You'll see this phrase, and hopefully the slides will build it. Where is the promise of his coming? So there is the word promise in verse 4. Jump down to verse 9. What does Peter remind them again? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Remember what I told you about when we first started working, working through 2 Peter? Be careful of repeated words, repeated phrases. This is where it's really important to note them. The second thing that he mentions, verse 5, is for they deliberately overlook this fact. So there's the, the idea of overlooking. In the unbelief, they deliberately overlook. Look at verse 8. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So you see where it's going. You've mentioned promise at the beginning and promise at the end. In the middle between those two are they deliberately overlook and they do not deliberately overlook beloved. He's warning that unbelievers overlook deliberately, but he's warning believers, don't you dare overlook. So what's in the middle? What is repeated twice in the middle of this particular? It's that phrase about the heavens existed long ago. But notice the repeated phrase at the end of verse 5. The earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. Then verse 7, he says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just as God brought about the destruction of the original creation through a, cre a flood, a global flood, so will God judge the earth through water, or rather through burning up and flame. Water the first time, flame the second time. What is the point? If you go back to that last slide, the point of a chiasmus, which is the, the, the Hebrew literary device he uses, and Peter was a Jew, he understood this, they used it all the time for instructional purposes. The reason why this was brought out is because when you construct a chiasmus like this, whatever is in the middle is the point of the passage. What is the point of this passage? By the word of God and by the same word, he's talking about divine revelation. What has Peter's point been from the beginning of chapter 1? Why should we be careful and what do we need to be reminded of? That God's word is true. And that governs everything we think and do. Peter is using this as a device to do that. Now, in verses 10 through 12, he's going to use the same kind of device, but he's going to do it in a different way. Look at verse 10. What do they do in verse 10? Well, it's what? They actually... Peter's talking about his confirmation of his reader's focus. What, is, what are they supposed to focus on? What's the point of these last two verses? This is what's going to happen when you focus on what God said to do. The day of the Lord. Well, that's obviously an eschatological term. That comes from the Old Testament prophets. You can look at Joel. You can look at Jonah. You can look at Isaiah. And they all talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, he says. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are, uh, are done on it will be exposed. Then he says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and there's no, uh, it's not a, a, a happenstance or by chance that he uses the same word again, he asks the question, what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness?
wait hastening. And, oh, here it comes again, the coming day of God in this point, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So you have dissolving and melting and burning, and you have in the midst of that the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of God. What's the point of this particular chiasmus? Well, we have the day of the Lord and the coming day of God at the end. What is in the middle? What is mentioned? Well, it has to do with the heavens pass away, and they get burned up, and they're dissolved. That's in verse 10. And what does he say again in verse 11? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what are we supposed to do? We're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. That's what's going to get restored. The heavens will pass away, and what's the opposite? New heavens and new earth will be installed. So what's in the middle of all this? Look at what's in the middle. Is that phrase, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's the point. This is going to happen. It's true. The prophets foretold it. Jesus commanded it. The apostles reinforced it. What's going to happen? The world's going to come to an end. So how should you and I live in light of that truth, in light of that fact? Very simple. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We're waiting for this promise that God has made to come true. How should we live in light of it? So Peter uses not only the word of God, divine revelation, in verses 4 through 9, as the point, he says, remember that the word of God is true, that what happened originally at the beginning was a fulfillment of the word of God, by the word of God, and that in light of the destruction, dissolving of the universe with heat and burning, what sort of people are you to be in light of the fact that the world is going to end? Since this is not something new, the world already has talk about, ah, the sky is falling. Like Chicken Little, remember? How should we live in light of the truth that that's going to happen? It's not a fairy tale. It's going to happen. Now, it's not going to happen the way the global warming people think it's going to happen. It's going to happen on God's timing, in God's timing, the way God wants it to, at exactly the right time, in exactly the right way, it's going to happen. But how should we live? That is what's going to happen. The world is going to end. How should you live in light of the fact that the world is going to end? That's what Peter's point is. Well, here are a few things I think are helpful. Uh, Colossians 1.17 states that Christ holds all things together. That term actually means to bring together in an organized manner, to constrain or to wrap up like a package. Jesus holds everything together. Did you know that? But Jesus was at creation. And he holds everything. That, that's just a phenomenal concept. Did you realize the reason why you don't fly apart into all kinds of little particles and electrons and, and, and atoms, and there's just a bunch of us floating around the room like that, that we actually hold together and there is a certain amount of matter that holds Tim Weeks together. 
and each one of you are individuals, and you have the same thing. You're made up of water and all kinds of minerals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why is it that you stay together, that the matter that makes you up is, holds together in the same shape and form, and you can move through time and space the way you do? It's because Jesus holds you together, physically holds you together. Every human being that walks on the face of the earth or has ever walked on the face of the earth has been held together by Jesus. That's what Colossians 1 is saying. Now, here's what 2 Peter says. He uses the word dissolve. You see it? In verse 10, in verse 11, and in verse 12. He uses the word dissolve. Same word. Here, the term dissolve means, and it's the exact opposite of hold together. He says, it, this word means to set free something tied or similarly constrained. So that which is held together by the hand of Jesus, one of these days, Jesus is going to release his ability to hold it together. He's going to take his hand off of it, and what's going to happen? It's going to dissolve. It's going to fly apart, it's, and what's created by that is going to be heat, and the world will burn up. It's not somebody's going to come along and torch something. No, Jesus is going to release his hold of holding everything together, and it's all going to fly apart. And when it flies apart, it will melt with a great heat. It will be dissolved. It's the exact opposite of holding together. Just like Christ holds all things together, so he will, at the day of judgment, he will relinquish his hold. Literally, he will untie what he has tied up. That's an interesting word picture, is it not? Jesus one day will untie what has been tied up. So how do I live in light of that? Well, the first thing you need to remember is God is in control. He is sovereign. Don't forget that. Second thing to remember, there will be scoffers. So what should we do with that? Don't pay attention to them. Follow Christ. I mean, this is a rocket science, folks. It's very simple. Somebody comes along and contradicts the Bible, say, sorry, sayonara, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to follow what Jesus says. It's not really that hard. The third thing. Keep God's promises central in your thinking. He's coming. Judgment is coming. New heavens and new earth have been promised. I'm looking forward to that day. So what does that produce in me? Does that produce in me fear and trembling? No. It produces confidence. I belong to Jesus. I'm safe. Fourth thing, how should we then live? Well, need to wait for his coming. Wait in such a way that we hasten or hurry the arrival of his coming. And how do we do that? Number one, by proclaiming the gospel. And number two, by making more disciples. How do we hasten the coming of Jesus? Follow him. Like I said, it's not rocket science. So 
You know that little ditty you may have learned in Sunday school if you grew up in church? It's read your Bible, pray every day. That's how you do that. Find out what God's Word says and talk to Him on a regular basis. This is not complicated, folks. Let's not make it more complicated than it is. Why does God want us to be faithful and live lives of holiness and godliness, like he says in verse, uh, verse 11? Is because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Basically, it's a gospel call from Peter at the end of his epistle. Live for Jesus, and in living for Jesus, you will be a living example of what it means to be the gospel. You're living out the gospel in front of a world that chooses not to believe, that deliberately chooses to ignore what God's word says. That's what he asks us to do. May the Lord help us to walk with Jesus in such a way that other people will be provoked to see what makes us different. Why don't you get all tangled up in knots about the world we live in? It looks like we're going to be persecuted. It looks like our economy is going to go in the tank. It looks like politics are just going to evolve into totalitarianism. Ah, what do we do? Follow Jesus. We don't have any other recourse because I have no power to change politics. I have no power to reverse the economy and make it work better. But I can follow Jesus. I can be obedient to Christ. That's Peter's point. How should we live in light of all this change and all this upheaval and the fact that the world's going to end, and it will? Follow Christ. Sounds pretty simple. Our job is to go back in Scripture and find out, how do I do that? And that's why we have times of teaching in our Sunday school. That's why we have times of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday nights. That's why we do these things. Not just because that's what we do at Trinity Baptist. There's a purpose for these things and the times we do them. So I encourage you to come and benefit from those things that are offered by the church so that you can follow Christ and live for him in a way that will please him and will be a testimony to the world outside. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness and your love and your kindness to us. You have been patient with the world. You could have destroyed it long ago, but you have chosen to allow time for people to come to repentance and faith. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus and has never experienced the forgiveness of their sins and repented of their sins, that, Lord, through what they have read and heard from this message this morning, that you might prick their hearts, draw them to yourself, and make them your children. I pray you'll do that for Jesus' glory, for our good, and for the advancement of the cause of the gospel and the hastening of your coming. In Jesus' name I pray.